12. Lie upon Bacon's head. When Parliament assembled in 1621 it vented its distrust of James and his favorite villars by striking unexpectedly at their chief advisor. Bacon was sternly accused of accepting bribes, and the evidence was so great that he confessed that there was much political corruption abroad in the land, that he was personally guilty of some of it, and he threw himself upon the mercy of his judges. Parliament at that time was in no mood for mercy. Bacon was deprived of his office and was sentenced to pay the enormous fine of 40.000 pounds, to be imprisoned during the king's pleasure, and thereafter to be banished forever from Parliament and court. Though the imprisonment lasted only a few days and the fine was largely remitted, Bacon's hopes and schemes for political honors were ended, and it is at this point of appalling adversity that the nobility in the man's nature asserts itself strongly. If the reader be interested to apply a great man's philosophy to his own life, he will find the essay of great place. Most interesting in this connection, Bacon now withdrew permanently from public life, and devoted his splendid ability to literary and scientific work. He completed the essays, experimented largely, wrote history, scientific articles, and one scientific novel, and made additions to his Instratio Magna the great philosophical work which was never finished, in the spring of 1626, while driving in a snowstorm, it occurred to him that snow might be used as a preservative instead of salt, true to his own method of arriving at truth, he stopped at the first house, bought a fowl, and proceeded to test his theory, the experiment chilled him, and he died soon after from the effects of his exposure, as Macaulay wrote. The great apostle of experimental philosophy was destined to be its martyr. Works of Bacon. Bacon's philosophic works. The advancement of learning and the Novum Organum. Will be best understood in connection with the Instratio Magna. Or the great institution of true philosophy. Of which they were parts. The Instratio was never completed. But the very idea of the work was magnificent. To sweep away the involved philosophy of the schoolmen and the educational systems of the universities and to substitute a single great work which should be a complete education, a rich storehouse for the glory of the Creator and for the relief of man's estate. The object of this education was to bring practical results to all the people, instead of a little selfish culture and much useless speculation, which, he conceived, were the only products of the universities, the INSDAURADIO MAGNA. This was the most ambitious, though it is not the best known, of Bacon's works for the insight it gives us into the author's mind, we note here a brief outline of his subject, it was divided into six parts, as follows, 1, Partitions Scientium, this was to be a classification and summary of all human knowledge, philosophy and all speculation must be cast out and the natural sciences established as the basis of all education, the only part completed was the advancement of learning, which served as an introduction, to Novum Organum, or the, new instrument, that island the use of reason and experiment instead of the old Aristotelian logic, to find truth one must do to things, get rid of all prejudices or idols, as Bacon called them, these, idols, are for, idols of the tribe, that island prejudices due to common methods of thought among all races, idols of the cave or den, that island personal peculiarities and prejudices, idols of the marketplace, due to errors of language, and, idols of the theater, which are the unreliable traditions of men. After discarding the above, idols, we must interrogate nature, must collect facts by means of numerous experiments, arrange them in order, and then determine the law that underlies them. 
it will be seen at a glance that the above is the most important of Bacon's works. The organum was to be in several books, only two of which he completed, and these he wrote and rewrote twelve times until they satisfied him. 3. Historic Naturalis and Experimentalis. The study of all the phenomena of nature, of four parts of this work which he completed, one of them at least, the Silva Silvarum, is decidedly at variance with his own idea of fact and experiment. It abounds in fanciful explanations, more worthy of the poetic than of the scientific mind. Nature is seen to be full of desires and instincts, the air thirsts for light and fragrance, bodies rise or sink because they have an appetite for height or depth, the qualities of bodies are the result of an essence, so that when we discover the essences of gold and silver and diamonds it will be a simple matter to create as much of them as we may need. For, scholar and lectures, or, ladder of the mind, is the rational application of the organum to all problems. By it the mind should ascend step by step from particular facts and instances to general laws and abstract principles. 5. Prodromi. Prophecies or Anticipations, is a list of discoveries that men shall make when they have applied Bacon's methods of study and experimentation. 6. Philosophia Secunda, which was to be a record of practical results of the new philosophy when the succeeding ages should have applied it faithfully. It is impossible to regard even the outline of such a vast work without an involuntary thrill of admiration for the bold and original mind which conceived it. We may, said Bacon, make no despicable beginnings. The destinies of the human race must complete the work, for upon this will depend not only a speculative good but all the fortunes of mankind and all their power. There is the unconscious expression of one of the great minds of the world. Bacon was like one of the architects of the Middle Ages who drew his plans for a mighty cathedral, perfect in every detail from the deep foundation stone to the cross on the highest spire, and who gave over his plans to the builders, knowing that, in his own lifetime, only one tiny chapel would be completed, but knowing also that the very beauty of his plans would appeal to others, and that succeeding ages would finish the work which he dared to begin. The Essays Bacon's famous Essays is the one work which will interest all students of our literature. His instrumental was in Latin, written mostly by paid helpers from short English abstracts. He regarded Latin as the only language worthy of a great work, but the world neglected his Latin to seize upon his English. Marvelous English, terse, pithy, packed with thought, in an age that used endless circumlocutions. The first ten essays, published in 1597, were a brief notebook jottings of Bacon's observations. Their success astonished the author but not till fifteen years later were they republished and enlarged. Their charm grew upon Bacon himself, and during his retirement he gave more thought to the wonderful language which he had at first despised as much as Aristotle's philosophy. In 1612 appeared a second edition containing 38 essays, and in 1625, the year before his death, he republished the essays in their present form, polishing and enlarging the original 10 to 58 covering a wide variety of subjects suggested by the life of men around him. Concerning the best of these essays there are as many opinions as there are readers, and what one gets out of them depends largely upon his own thought and intelligence. In this respect they are like that nature to which Bacon directed men's thoughts. The whole volume may be read through in an evening, but after one has read them a dozen times he still finds as many places to pause and reflect as at the first reading. If one must choose out of such a storehouse, we would suggest, studies, goodness, riches, atheism, unity in religion, 
adversity, friendship, and great place as an introduction to Bacon's worldly wise philosophy. Miscellaneous works. Other works of Bacon are interesting as a revelation of the Elizabethan mind, rather than because of any literary value. The New Atlantis is a kind of scientific novel describing another utopia as seen by Bacon. The inhabitants of Atlantis have banished philosophy and applied Bacon's method of investigating nature, using the results to better their own condition. They have a wonderful civilization, in which many of our later discoveries academies of the sciences, observatories, balloons, submarines, the modification of species, and several others were foreshadowed with a strange mixture of cold reason and poetic intuition. De sapientia veterum is a fanciful attempt to show the deep meaning underlying ancient myths, a meaning which would have astonished the myth-makers themselves. The history of Henry V.I.I. is a calm, dispassionate, and remarkably accurate history, which makes us regret that Bacon did not do more historical work. Besides these are metrical versions of certain sums which are valuable. In view of the controversy on Ed Shakespeare's plays, for showing Bacon's upper inability to write poetry and a large number of letters and state papers showing the range and power of his intellect, Bacon's place and work. Although Bacon was for the greater part of his life a busy man of affairs, one cannot read his work without becoming conscious of two things, a perennial freshness, which the world insists upon in all literature that is to endure and an intellectual power which marks him as one of the great minds of the world. Of late the general tendency is to give less and less prominence to his work in science and philosophy, but criticism of his instratio, in view of his lofty aim, is of small consequence. It is true that his science today seems woefully inadequate, true also that, though he sought to discover truth, he thought perhaps to monopolize it, and so looked with the same suspicion upon Copernicus as upon the philosophers. The practical man who despises philosophy has simply misunderstood the thing he despises. In being practical and experimental in a romantic age he was not unique, as is often alleged, but only expressed the tendency of the English mind in all ages. Three centuries earlier the monk Roger Bacon did more practical experimenting than the Elizabethan sage, and the latter's famous idols are strongly suggestive of the former's for sources of human ignorance. Although Bacon did not make any of the scientific discoveries at which he aimed, yet the whole spirit of his work, especially of the organum, has strongly influenced science in the direction of accurate observation and of carefully testing every theory by practical experiment. He that regardeth the clouds shall not so, said a wise writer of old, and Bacon turned men's thoughts from the heavens above, with which they had been too busy, to the earth beneath, which they had too much neglected. In an age when men were busy with romance and philosophy, he insisted that the first object of education is to make a man familiar with his natural environment, from books he turned to men, from theory to fact, from philosophy to nature, and that is perhaps his greatest contribution to life and literature. Like Moses upon Pisgah, he stood high enough above his fellows to look out over a promised land, which his people would inherit, but into which he himself might never enter. Richard Hooker 1554, 1600 in strong contrast with Bacon is Richard Hooker, one of the greatest prose writers of the Elizabethan age. One must read the story of his life, an obscure and lowly life animated by a great spirit, as told by Isaac Walton, to appreciate the full force of this contrast. Bacon took all knowledge for his province, but mastered no single part of it. Hooker, taking a single theme, the law and practice of the English church 
so handled it that no scholar even of the present day would dream of superseding it or of building upon any other foundation than that which Hooker laid down. His one great work is the laws of ecclesiastical polity, a theological and argumentative book, but, entirely apart from its subject, it will be read wherever men desire to hear the power and stateliness of the English language. Here is a single sentence, remarkable not only for its perfect form but also for its expression of the reverence for law which lies at the heart of Anglo-Saxon civilization, of law there can be no less acknowledged than that her seat is the bosom of God, her voice the harmony of the world, all things in heaven and earth do her homage, the very least as feeling her care, and the greatest as not exempted from her power, both angels and men, and creatures of what condition soever, though each in different sort and manner, yet all with uniform consent admiring her as the mother of their peace and joy. Sidney and Raleigh, among the prose writers of this wonderful literary age there are many others that deserve passing notice, though they fall far below the standard of Bacon and Hooker. Sir Philip Sidney 1554-1586, who has already been considered as a poet, is quite as well known by his prose works, Arcadia, a pastoral romance, and the defense of poesy. One of our earliest literary essays, Sidney, whom the poet Shelley has eulogized, represents the whole romantic tendency of his age, while Sir Walter Raleigh 1552-1618 represents its adventurous spirit and activity. The life of Raleigh is an almost incomprehensible mixture of the poet, scholar, and adventurer, now helping the Huguenots or the struggling Dutch in Europe, and now leading an expedition into the unmapped wilds of the New World busy here with court intrigues, and there with piratical attempts to capture the gold-laden Spanish galleons, one moment sailing the high seas in utter freedom, and the next writing history and poetry to solace his imprisonment. Such a life in itself is a volume far more interesting than anything that he wrote. He is the restless spirit of the Elizabethan age personified. Raleigh's chief prose works are the discovery of Guyana, a work which would certainly have been interesting enough had he told simply what he saw but which was filled with colonization schemes and visions of an Eldorado to fill the eyes and ears of the credulous, and the history of the world, written to occupy his prison hours. The history is a wholly untrustworthy account of events from creation to the downfall of the Macedonian Empire. It is interesting chiefly for its style, which is simple and dignified, and for the flashes of wit and poetry that break into the fantastic combination of miracles, traditions, hearsay and state records which he called history. In the conclusion is the famous apostrophe to death, which suggests what Raleigh might have done had he lived less strenuously and written more carefully. O eloquent, just, and mighty death, whom none could advise thou hast persuaded, what none hath dared thou hast done, and whom all the world hath flattered thou only hast cast out of the world and despised, thou hast drawn together all the star-stretched greatness, all the pride, cruelty, and ambition of man and covered it all over with these two narrow words, he chase it, John Fox 1516-1587, Fox will be remembered always for his famous book of martyrs, a book that our elders gave to us on Sundays when we were young, thinking it good discipline for us to afflict our souls when we wanted to be roaming the sunlit fields, or when in our enforced idleness we would, if our own taste in the matter had been consulted, have made good shift to be quiet and happy with Robinson Crusoe. So we have a gloomy memory of Fox, and something of a grievance, which prevented just appreciation of his worth. Fox had been driven out of England by the Marian persecutions, 
and in a wandering but diligent life on the continent he conceived the idea of writing a history of the persecutions of the church from the earliest days to his own. The part relating to England and Scotland was published, in Latin, in 1559 under a title as sonorous and impressive as the Roman office for the dead. Rerum in Ecclesia Gestarum Maximarum Capor Europem Perscutionum Commentary. On his return to England Fox translated this work, calling it the Acts and Monuments, but it soon became known as the Book of Martyrs, and so it will always be called. Fox's own bitter experience causes him to write with more heat and indignation than his saintly theme would warrant, and the holy tone sometimes spoils a narrative that would be impressive in its bare simplicity. Nevertheless the book has made for itself a secure place in our literature. It is strongest in its record of humble men, like Roland Taylor and Thomas Fox, whose sublime heroism, but for this narrative, would have been lost amid the great names and the great events that fill the Elizabethan age. Camden and Knox, two historians, William Camden and John Knox, stand out prominently among the numerous historical writers of the age. Camden's Britannia 1586 is a monumental work, which marks the beginning of true antiquarian research in the field of history, and his Annals of Queen Elizabeth is worthy of a far higher place than has thus far been given it. John Knox, the reformer, in his history of the Reformation in Scotland, has some very vivid portraits of his helpers and enemies. The personal and aggressive elements enter too strongly for a work of history, but the autobiographical parts show rare literary power. His account of his famous interview with Mary Queen of Scots is clear-cut as a cameo, and shows the man's extraordinary power better than a whole volume of biography. Such scenes make one wish that more of his time had been given to literary work, rather than to the disputes and troubles of his own Scotch Kirk, Hacklewood and Purchase. Two editors of this age have made for themselves an enviable place in our literature. They are Richard Hacklewood 1552. 1616 and Samuel Purchase 1575, 1626. Hacklett was a clergyman who in the midst of his little parish set himself to achieve two great patriotic ends, to promote the wealth and commerce of his country, and to preserve the memory of all his countrymen who added to the glory of the realm by their travels and explorations. To further the first object he concerned himself deeply with the commercial interests of the East India Company with Raleigh's colonizing plans in Virginia, and with a translation of de Soto's travels in America. To further the second he made himself familiar with books of voyages in all foreign languages and with the brief reports of explorations of his own countrymen, his principal navigations, voyages, and discoveries of the English nation, in three volumes, appeared first in 1589, and a second edition followed in 1598-1600. The first volume tells of voyages to the north, the second to India and the east, the third, which is as large as the other two, to the New World, with the exception of the very first voyage, that of King Arthur to Iceland in 517, which is founded on a myth. All the voyages are authentic accounts of the explorers themselves, and are immensely interesting reading even at the present day. No other book of travels has so well expressed the spirit and energy of the English race or better deserves a place in our literature. Samuel Purchase, who was also a clergyman, continued the work of Hacklett, using many of the latter's unpublished manuscripts and condensing the records of numerous other voyages. His first famous book, Purchase, His Pilgrimage, appeared in 1613, and was followed by Hacklinus Posthumus, or Purchase His Pilgrims, in 1625. 
the very name inclines one to open the book with pleasure, and when one follows his inclination which island after all, one of the best guides in literature he is rarely disappointed, though it falls far below the standard of Hakluyt, both in accuracy and literary finish. There is still plenty to make one glad that the book was written and that he can now comfortably follow purchase on his pilgrimage. Thomas North, among the translators of the Elizabethan age Sir Thomas North 1535-1601, is most deserving of notice because of his version of Plutarch's Lives 1579 from which Shakespeare took the characters and many of the incidents for three great Roman plays. Thus in North we read, Caesar also had Cassius in great jealousy and suspected him much, whereupon he said on a time to his friends, What will Cassius do? Think ye, I like not his pale looks. Another time when Caesar's friends warned him of Antonius and Dolabella, he answered them again, I never reckon of them, but these pale-visaged and carrion lean people, I fear them most, meaning Brutus and Cassius. Shakespeare merely touches such a scene with the magic of his genius, and his Caesar speaks, let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such as sleep o' nights. Young Cassius has a lean and hungry look, he thinks too much, such men are dangerous. A careful reading of North's Plutarch and then of the famous Roman plays shows to how great an extent Shakespeare was dependent upon his obscure contemporary. North's translation, to which we owe so many heroic models in our literature, was probably made not from Plutarch but from Emiot's excellent French translation. Nevertheless he reproduces the spirit of the original, and notwithstanding our modern and more accurate translations, he remains the most inspiring interpreter of the great biographer whom Emerson calls, the historian of heroism. Summary of the Age of Elizabeth. This period is generally regarded as the greatest in the history of our literature. Historically, we note in this age the tremendous impetus received from the Renaissance, from the Reformation, and from the exploration of the New World. It was marked by a strong national spirit, by patriotism, by religious tolerance, by social content, by intellectual progress, and by unbounded enthusiasm. Such an age, of thought, feeling, and vigorous action, finds its best expression in the drama, and the wonderful development of the drama, culminating in Shakespeare, is the most significant characteristic of the Elizabethan period, though the age produced some excellent prose works. It is essentially an age of poetry, and the poetry is remarkable for its variety, its freshness, its youthful and romantic feeling. Both the poetry and the drama were permeated by Italian influence, which was dominant in English literature from Chaucer to the Restoration. The literature of this age is often called the literature of the Renaissance, though, as we have seen, the Renaissance itself began much earlier, and for a century and a half added very little to our literary possessions. In our study of this great age we have noted one the non-dramatic poets, that island poets who did not write for the stage. The center of this group is Edmund Spencer, whose Shepherd's Calendar 1579 marked the appearance of the first national poet since Chaucer's death in 1400. His most famous work is The Fairy Queen. Associated with Spencer are the minor poets, Thomas Sackville, Michael Drayton, George Chapman, and Philip Sidney. Chapman is noted for his completion of Marlowe's poem, Hero and Leander, and for his translation of Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. Sidney, besides his poetry, wrote his prose romance Arcadia, and the defense of poesy, one of our earliest critical essays, to the rise of the drama in England, the miracle plays, moralities, and interludes, our first play, 
Ralph Royster Boyster, the first true English comedy, Gammergarten's Needle, and the first tragedy, Gorbotic, the conflict between classic and native ideals in the English drama, three Shakespeare's predecessors, Lily, Kid, Nash, Peel, Green, Marlowe, the types of drama with which they experimented, the Marlowe-esque, one-man type, or tragedy of passion, the popular chronicle plays, the domestic drama, the court or Lillian comedy, romantic comedy and tragedy, classical plays, and the melodrama. Marlowe is the greatest of Shakespeare's predecessors. His four plays are, Tamburlaine, Faustus, The Jew of Malta, and, Edward I.I. Four Shakespeare, His Life, Work, and Influence. Five Shakespeare's successors, Ben Jonson, Beaumont and Fletcher, Webster, Middleton, Haywood, Decker, and the rapid decline of the drama. Ben Jonson is the greatest of this group. His chief comedies are, Every Man in His Humor, The Silent Woman, and, The Alchemist. His two extant tragedies are, Sejanus, and, Catalan. Six The Prose Writers, of whom Bacon is the most notable. His chief philosophical work is the Instratial Magna Incomplete, which includes, The Advancement of Learning, and the, Novum Organum, but he is known to literary readers by his famous essays. Minor prose writers are Richard Hooker, John Fox, the historians Camden and Knox, the editors Hackwood and Purchase, who gave us the stirring records of exploration, and Thomas North, the translator of Plutarch's Lives, selections for reading, Spencer, Fairy Queen, selections in Standard English Classics, BK, I in Riverside Literature Series, etc., Shepherd's Calendar, in Castle's National Library, selected poems. In Canterbury Poets Series, Minor Poems. In Temple Classics, Selections in Manly's English Poetry. Or Ward's English Poets. Minor Poets. Drayton. Sackville. Sydney. Chapman. Selections in Manly or Ward. Elizabethan Songs. In Schelling's Elizabethan Lyrics. And in Palgrave's Golden Treasury, Chapman's Homer. In Temple Classics. The Early Drama. Play of Noah's Flood. In Manly's Specimens of the Pre-Shakespearean Drama or in Pollard's English Miracle Plays, Moralities and Interludes, or in Bell's Letra Series, Seconds to, L.T. Smith's The York Miracle Plays, Lily, and Inidon, in Holt's English Readings, Marlowe, Faustus, in Temple Dramatists, or Murder Maid Series, or Morley's Universal Library, or Lamb's Specimens of English Dramatic Poets, Selections in Manley's English Poetry, or Ward's English Poets, Edward I.I., in Temple Dramatists, and in Holt's English readings, Shakespeare, Merchant of Venice, Julius Caesar, Macbeth, etc. in standard English classics edited, with notes, with special reference to college entrance requirements. Good editions of single plays are numerous and cheap. Hudson's and Rolf's and the Arden Shakespeare are suggested as satisfactory. The Sonnets, edited by Beeching, in Athenaeum Press series, Ben Johnson, The Alchemist, in Canterbury Poets series or Morley's Universal Library, selections in Manley's English Poetry, or Ward's English Poets, or Canterbury Poets Series, selections from Johnson's Masks, in Evans's English Masks, Timber, edited by Schelling, in Athenaeum Press Series, Bacon, Essays, School Edition Ginn and Company, Northup's Edition, in Riverside Literature Series various other inexpensive editions, in the Pitt Press, Golden Treasury Series, etc., Advancement of Learning, B.K., I edited by Cook Ginn and Company, compare selections from Bacon, Hooker, Lilly, and Sidney.
in Manley's English Prose, Bibliography, History, Textbook, Montgomery, pages 208-38, Cheney, pages 330-410, Green, Chapter 7, Trail, Macaulay, Fruit, Special Works, Creighton's The Age of Elizabeth, Hall Society in the Elizabethan Age, Winter Shakespeare's England, Gobies The England of Shakespeare, Lee Stratford on Avon, Harrison's Elizabethan England, Literature, St. Sparebury's History of Elizabethan Literature, Whipple's Literature of the Age of Elizabeth, S. Lee's Great Englishman of the 16th Century, Schilling's Elizabethan Lyrics, in Athenaeum Press Series, Vernon Lee's Euphorion, Spencer, Texts, Cambridge, Globe, and Aldine Editions, Noel's Selected Poems of Spencer, in Canterbury Poets, Minor Poems, in Temple Classics, Arbor's Spencer Anthology, Church's Life of Spencer, in English Men of Letters Series, Lowell's Essay, in Among My Books, or in Literary Essays, Volume 4, Hazlitt's Chaucer and Spencer, in Lectures on the English Poets, Doughton's Essay, in Transcripts and Studies, The Drama, Texts, Manly Specimens of the Pre-Shakespearean Drama, Two Vols, in Athenaeum Press Series, Pollard's English Miracle Plays, Moralities and Interludes, The Temple Dramatists, Morley's Universal Library, Arbor's English Reprints, Murder Maid Series, etc., There's the Best Elizabethan Plays, Daly's Plays of Our Forefathers' Miracles, Moralities, etc., Bates's The English Religious Drama, Schelling's The English Chronicle Play, Lowell's Old English Dramatists, Boas's Shakespeare and His Predecessors, Simons's Shakespeare's Predecessors in the English Drama, Schelling's Elizabethan Drama, Lamb's Specimens of English Dramatic Poets, Introduction to Hudson's Shakespeare, His Life, Art, and Characters, Ward's History of English Dramatic Literature, Decker's The Gull's Hornbook, In King's Classics, Marlowe, Works, Edited by Bolin, Chief Plays in Temple Dramatists, Murder Made Series of English Dramatists, Morley's Universal Library, etc., Lowell's Old English Dramatists, Simons's Introduction, In Murder Made Series, Doughton's Essay, In Transcripts and Studies, Shakespeare, Good Texts Are Numerous, Furness's Variorum Edition is at present most useful for advanced work, Hudson's Revised Edition, Each Play in a Single Volume, With Notes and Introductions, Will, One Complete, Be One of the Very Best for Students' Use, Raleigh Shakespeare, in English Men of Letters series, Lee's Life of Shakespeare, Hudson's Shakespeare, His Life, Art, and Characters, Halliwell Phillips's Outlines of the Life of Shakespeare, Fleece Chronicle History of the Life and Work of Shakespeare, Doughton's Shakespeare, A Critical Study of His Mind and Art, Shakespeare Primer Same Author, Baker's The Development of Shakespeare as a Dramatist, Lounsbury's Shakespeare as a Dramatic Artist, The Text of Shakespeare Same Author, Wendell's William Shakespeare, Bradley's Shakespearean Tragedy, Hazlitt's Shakespeare and Milton, in Lectures on the English Poets, Emerson's Essay, Shakespeare or the Poet, Lowell's Essay, in Among My Books, Lamb's Tales from Shakespeare, Mrs. Jameson's Shakespeare's Female Characters Called Also Characteristics of Women, Rolf's Shakespeare the Boy, Brandis's William Shakespeare, Moulton's Shakespeare as a Dramatic Artist, Maybe's William Shakespeare, Poet, Dramatist, and Man, The Shakespeare Apocrypha. Edited by C.F.T. Brook, Shakespeare's Holinched. Edited by Stone, Shakespeare Lexicon. By Schmidt, Concordance. By Bartlett, Grammar. By Abbott, or by France. Ben Johnson. Texts in Murder Made Series. Temple Dramatists. Morley's Universal Library. Etc. 
Masks and Entertainments of Ben Johnson, edited by Morley, in Carisbrook Library, Timber, edited by Schelling, in Athenaeum Press Series, Moment, Fletcher, etc. Plays in Murder Made Series, Temple Dramatists, etc. Schelling's Elizabethan Drama, Lowell's Old English Dramatists, Lamb's Specimens of English Dramatic Poets, Fleece Biographical Chronicle of the English Drama, Swinburne's Essays, in Essays in Prose and Poetry, and in Essays and Studies, Bacon, Texts, Essays in Every Man's Library, etc., Advancement of Learning in Clarendon Press Series, Library of E.